0: Well, good morning. It's very, very nice to be back here at First Presbyterian Church, and we're very grateful for the long relationship that our family and our ministry, African Bible Colleges, has had with your church. And I did want to say thank you to Reverend Miller and to your missions committee and to Don Blackburn for inviting me to preach here this morning. I think a lot of people assume that when you go overseas and move to Africa to be a missionary that they're a lot of sacrifices, and many times there are. But there's also wonderful blessing, which is what Christ promised his disciples in Matthew 19 when Peter said, Well, Christ, we've left everything for you, our homes and our families, our brothers and sisters. What are we going to get back in return? And Christ said, Don't you know you're going to get back a hundred times as much? And that's what you have been to us, a wonderful blessing, great brothers and sisters in Christ. And... Let me just say for Don and Janet Blackburn, genuine mothers and fathers in Christ, just like Christ promised his disciples. So it's wonderful to be back here with you to worship. As Reverend Miller said, our family lives in Lilongwe, Malawi. That's the capital city where we have a college campus there. And I tell people, don't feel bad if you don't know where Lilongwe is because the airlines don't know either not long ago our family was checking in at the airport in Jackson Mississippi where we live when we're on furlough we had our five children and 22 pieces of luggage and there's a sky cap from Delta Airlines helping us with our bags and he said where do you want these checked to and I said well they're going to Lilongwe. the airline code is LLW and he said "Lilongwe. well where is that I said well it's the capital city of Malawi and he said well how do you get to Lilongwe?" I said well it's four flights. It's a long trip. From Jackson, you fly to Atlanta, from Atlanta to D.C. From D.C. it's 18 hours to Johannesburg, and then another flight, Johannesburg up to Lilongwe. And he looked at me and he said, well, they sure named it that city right. (laughs) He said, it's a long way to Lilongwe." Well, Reverend Miller was telling you thank you for what your church has done for the mission organization in Nicaragua, for what you've done with the Bible translation in Sudan. I also want to say thank you for the many projects over the past 30 or more years that your church has helped us with in Uganda and very recently in Malawi. Uh, Just this summer, your missions committee gave us a gift to help expand our library facilities. We've been meeting in our library in one small building very limited shelf space, no reading room area, no uh, periodical section, no real computer lab. We had four little computers, four computers for a student body that's almost 400. We've doubled our enrollment in the last three or four years. And so with your gift, we're able to blow out the back walls of the library, add offices, bookshelf space, and add 20 computers so we can have a proper research center for our students when they're doing their work. And this is what helps keep African Bible colleges and keeps our students and our graduates not just at the cutting edge of Christian education, higher Christian education in Africa, but Christian university-level education, period. And if we're really going to put out leaders that are going to be taking positions in the church, but also in government and in business, we have to have them trained at the highest level. So thank you for catching that vision and sharing in that with us. We're very grateful. Well, this morning, I wanted to talk about how God has given each one of us, every one of us, a story to live. A very amazing story, a story that if we live it well, if we live our life the way God intended, it will bring him great joy and great glory. And if we live our story the way God intended, he's also able to tell his story through our lives, the story of his mercy and his grace. And his salvation. And throughout Scripture, we see this. We see God using the lives of his people to tell his story. You look at the whole building of the nation of Israel from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph to Moses to Joshua. The whole story of the nation of Israel is God telling his story through his people, revealing things about himself through his people's stories. We learn about God's holiness through the story of Moses. They're at Mount Sinai. And God says, tell your people don't touch this mountain. I'm here. I'm holy. They will not live if they touch this mountain. We learn about God being a just and a God who judges us through the story of Lot. We learn that we, about a gracious God by the way he deals with Ruth. We learn about mercy of God through the story of Jonah. We learn that we serve a determined God and a powerful God through the story of Joshua. We learn of God's providence and his divine appointment through the story of Joseph. Now, when you hear that about great people in the Bible, you say, well, what does that have to do with me? Those are great historical figures from Scripture. Well, it has everything to do with you because when God chose you to be part of his family, when he brought you in, he also wanted you to live a life that not only glorifies Him and honors Him and brings Him joy. That's our very first first job, the very first thing that we're called to. But we're also called to contribute to His kingdom, to participate in the building up of it. And so this morning I wanted to read a passage out of Jeremiah. If you'll turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. It's a great passage that's explaining that God not only created and made each one of us, But he then chose to bring us into his family for a very specific reason. Just as you'll see God giving Jeremiah a very specific job. He has a very specific reason. He brought you into his family. A very specific story that he wants you to live and to tell others as well. Jeremiah chapter 1, we'll start reading at verse 4 through verse 9. Now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Before I formed you in the womb... I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And then Jeremiah said, Well, alas, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak. Behold, I am just a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am just a youth, because everywhere I send you, you will go. And all that I command you to speak, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand, and he touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Now in that passage, God is saying some very powerful things, making very powerful statements to Jeremiah. He says, One, I made you. I consecrated you. I set you apart for a very specific work. He says, I'll be with you. I will deliver you I have put my words in your mouth Now just because God did all of those things to for Jeremiah it doesn't mean that Jeremiah's life was happy and perfect In fact there were times when Jeremiah was miserable If you go to chapter 20 Jeremiah is complaining to God Nobody likes me he actually says Behold I have become a laughingstock and he doesn't stop there he says I have become a laughingstock all day long and then he goes on and he says and and, and people mock me but he doesn't say some people mock me he says everyone is mocking me but the important thing was that Jeremiah was willing to follow God's leading willing to put his trust in God and to live his story just as God wanted him to and so God has a specific role a specific story for each one of us because he knows us so well he made us He wants us to live an amazing story and an amazing life. Unfortunately, we don't always do things exactly how God would intend us to. We don't live our story perfectly like he would like us to. It's like when you are raising your children. You know exactly how they should behave. You know what schools you want them in. You know what universities they should go to. You know which sorority or fraternity they need to join so that they can get the right job and the right major when they finish college and what family they need to marry into. And you know that if your children do everything just as you wish, they would have a full and a happy and a perfect life. Unfortunately, our kids don't always live the life that we would imagine they should. And we are disappointed, and sometimes they suffer because of that. And it's the same with the story that God has intended for each one of us. If we live it the way intended, there's wonderful blessing waiting for us. It pleases God when we live obediently to him. He has a a fantastic story for each one of us to live. Well, this morning I wanted to share with you part of my story, part of our family story. I want it to be an encouragement to you, but I also want you to stop and think, well, what is my story? How could God be using me in his kingdom? How is God using me? to do His work and accomplish His will. God wants all of us to live a great story because when you live it well, your story can change other people's lives. God is able to tell His story through you. And that's how the story I'm going to tell you actually begins, is one person's story influencing another person who leaves his home and changes the course of a whole continent. But this isn't just a story about me or about the Chin Chin family. This is God bringing together a number of different stories in order to accomplish his perfect will. Well, this story actually begins in 1838. There's a young doctor in Scotland named David Livingston, a very discouraged doctor because he was supposed to be in China. He had been accepted to be a missionary with China Inland Mission, was preparing to leave when he received a letter saying, you can't go to China, there's a war going on called the Opium Wars, you have to stay home. So he was at his home in Blantyre, Scotland, when a missionary from South Africa named Robert Moffat came and spoke at his church. And when he was speaking, Robert Moffat said, he said, From our mission station in Krumen, which is in northern South Africa, from our mission station in Krumen, we can see the smoke of a thousand villages that have never heard the name Jesus Christ. And David Livingston couldn't get that out of his heart, and so he asked Moffat, can I go back to Africa with you, and he did. And from crewmen in South Africa, he started going north, and he started discovering amazing things that Europeans had never heard about or read about. He found the great Zambezi River. He found Victoria Falls, Lake Victoria, Mount Kilimanjaro. But he also found some horrible, horrid things going on. The, The Arabs were already into the interior of Africa. They were already bringing slaves, dragging them, killing them, forcing them out to Zanzibar to sell them on the coast of of Tanzania as slaves. And Livingston wrote home about the horrible things as well as all of the wonderful things he found. It was during that time that his mission organization, the London Missionary Society, wrote him a letter. They said, David Livingston, we would like to send someone to come and help you. Please let us know if there is a good road to where you are and we will send them. And David Livingston wrote a famous reply where he said, if the person you are sending needs a good road, don't send them. I need someone who is willing to go where there are no roads. So Livingston was actually in Africa that first trip for almost 20 years. He came back to England in 1857, and he spoke at a number of different universities. But one of the most famous speeches he gave was at the University of Cambridge in what they call their Great Hall. And that evening, when David Livingston was supposed to come speak, the hall was packed. The university students had heard about him. He was a national hero. Everybody had heard about these discoveries. And, and, and there was standing room only, and everyone was on the edge of their seat, ready to burst into applause when this great hero and explorer walked out on the stage. But when David Livingstone came through a side door and started going up the steps to the stage, nobody clapped. It was completely silent because he wasn't the person they were expecting at all. He was drawn, he was shriveled, he had lost half of his weight, his face and eyes were shrunken in, he was sunburned. He had been attacked by a lion and so his right arm hung and he walked with a limp from his right leg. And he stood there in front of that silent crowd but gave a wonderful talk, begging people to come back to Africa and help him plant churches and help him stop slavery In Africa, And this is what he said to the people that night at the University of Cambridge. He says, this is how he ended his speech. I have opened the door to Africa. Do not let it be shut again. I am now returning to open a path for commerce and Christianity. Will you carry on the work I have begun or will you allow the door to close again behind me? I leave it with you. And one person that was inspired by David Livingston was a young man named McKenzie. And he gathered together six other men and they followed David Livingston back to Africa. They were actually, the place where Livingston sent them was Lake Nyasa, which is today Lake Malawi, the country we live in. The very first missionaries that Livingston sent were on the shores of Lake Malawi, where they planted the first Presbyterian church in Central Africa, the first Presbyterian church in the country of what is today Malawi. But Livingston didn't stay long. Five of the seven men that he took, including himself, died of malaria in the first two years. But they had planted the first Presbyterian church. That was the Church of Scotland. They were followed by Robert Laws in the Free Church of Scotland, and then Andrew Murray and William Murray from the Dutch Reformed Church out of South Africa. And so pretty soon Malawi had three strong Reformed Presbyterian churches, Church of Scotland Free Church of Scotland, the Dutch Reformed Church. And after the turn of the century, they formed them into one large church called the CCAP, which is the Church of Central Africa Presbyterian that now has over 6 million members in our one country of Malawi alone. And what that church did was open the door to Christianity from a slave trading center where the Arabs had control along the coast a very Christian nation that welcomed Christian organizations and one Christian organization to come into Malawi was Campus Crusade. A young man named Bill Bouvet from Orlando, Florida started Campus Crusade's work there. But while he was in Malawi, he went on a trip 4,000 miles across Africa to Liberia where my parents had founded the first African Bible college back in the mid-1970s. While Bill Bouvet was in Liberia for a Campus Crusade conference, He met some of our graduates from ABC, and they told him about this Christian university in Liberia. And so he said, well, take me there to visit. And he met some of our staff and met some of our students. And my father tells the story of sitting at his desk in his office and this young American bursting into his office and asking him, are you Jack Chin Chin? And my father nods his head and he said, Jack, we need a college like this in Malawi. My father sat there a little bit surprised for a minute, and then he said he asked Bill Bouvet two questions. One, who are you? And secondly, where is Malawi? But because of Bill Bouvet, my father wrote me that spring. That was the spring of 1986, and I was a senior at Biola University out in California. And my father said, Would you like to go to Malawi with me this summer? Now, I think a lot of people assume that because I grew up in Africa, my parents moved to Liberia in 1970 when I was six years old, and I was there all the way through my senior year of high school, and people assume that because I grew up there, I would always want to go back to be a missionary or to live in Africa. But it wasn't like that. In fact, it really wasn't like that at all. One, I felt like I had been missing out on a lot of things that all of my friends back in America had been enjoying while I was stuck in the jungle of Africa. And so I was ready to finish high school. When I was finishing in 1982, I was ready to get out of there. Secondly, just weeks after I graduated from high school, something happened that really changed my heart about Africa. A good friend of ours, George Call, was killed in a plane crash. We had known George Call since the day we got off the jet plane in 1970. He's the one that picked us up in his little Cessna 185 and flew us to the Jungle Mission Station where we would spend our first seven years. He was a good friend of our families. In fact, we had a pet chimpanzee named after George Call because when we got off the plane in 1970, George Call had a chimpanzee named Delbert, which was my older brother's name. And my older brother was tremendously offended that George Call had a chimpanzee named Delbert. And so when we got one of our first chimps, Dell looked at the chimp and he said, well, I know that chimpanzee's name. That's George Call. <laughs> and so that summer when his plane crashed in the jungle in Liberia, I was devastated. That was just weeks before I should to get on the plane to come back to college. And I remember after the funeral service that evening, I was sitting on the front steps of a mission guest house in Monrovia right on the beach. And I was sitting there with my father and I was crying and I was upset And I said, Dad, I said, I'm never coming back. I said, I'm getting on the plane to leave, but I don't want to ever come back to work in Africa. And now my father was asking me four years later, I'm about to graduate, do you want to come with me to Malawi? And I said, well, for how long? He said, well, we're just going to visit. We want to look to see if we want to build a college. I said, well, that sounds like fun. I said, that's fine. They said, we'll meet us in Ivory Coast, which is on the western hump of Africa. I was flying into Monrovia, which is where my parents lived, and they said, we'll be in Ivory Coast visiting. My sister was in boarding school. They said, just spend one night in the capital city, and then you can fly to Ivory Coast, and then we'll fly together. Ethiopian Airways had a flight to Kenya. It was a nine-hour flight to Nairobi and then down to Malawi. So I flew into Monrovia that evening, went to the mission guest house in the capital city the next day, the next evening I went back to the airport, went to get on the plane, gave the immigration official my passport and he looked at it and he said, well, you never bought a visa. I said, well, I don't need a visa, I'm in transit. I just got in last night, I'm I'm meeting my family in Ivory Coast and we're flying over to East Africa. And he said, no, but you've been here more than 24 hours, you were supposed to buy a visa. And I said, well, that, that's fine. I said, how much is a visa? I'll buy one now. He said, no, no. He said, we don't sell them at the airport. You have to go to immigration downtown. I said, well, they're, they're closed. I said, it's an hour and a half each way. The plane will be gone by the time I get back, and they're closed. He said, well, sorry, there's nothing I can do. You'll have to fly tomorrow. And I was terribly discouraged, which meant I was going to miss a flight in Ivory Coast. My parents would leave for Malawi for a week while I'm sitting at this little mission guest house in Monrovia. I was totally discouraged standing off to the side when all of a sudden i see the head of the mission where i just spent the night before big mission organization had 50 or 60 families working in the capital city of monrovia uh, he could have walked up to the presidential mansion any day of the week and had an audience with the president that's how big that mission organization was and here's the head of the mission walking up to get on my plane i said oh mr shea i said i'm so glad to see you I need you to help me. I said, these people won't let me on the airplane. And I explained the visa business. And so he took my passport, and he looked at it, and he said, well, Paul, he said, you know, these people, they have laws in their country, and I'm not comfortable asking them to break their laws. And he folded my passport hand back. He said, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. And he walked by me to get on the plane. And and, and I felt like the guy laying on the ground in the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the high priest is walking by, and the guy laying on the ground is going, are, are you really going to keep walking? Are, are you serious about this? While he's laying on the side of the road. And that's how I felt with this guy. Mr. Sayer, are you serious about this? And he left me standing there. And I was totally discouraged. Now I knew my ship was sunk. And I'm hanging my head, and a young Liberian boy came up to me, maybe 19 or 20. And he said, give me your passport, I can help you. And at this point, I didn't care. if He ran off with it, sold it, whatever happened. I knew I was stuck in Monrovia, so I just handed my passport. But I did tell him, I said, look, I said, I don't have any money. I said, really, all I have is $5. He said, that's fine. I don't need any money. He took my passport. 10, 15 minutes later, he came back. He said, here's your passport. They've stamped your visa in it. You can get on the airplane. I said, wow. I said, I really do have $5. I said, but that's all I have. Can I give it to you? And I'm trying to hand it to him. And he's saying, is that all you have is $5? I said, said, you're going to need that when you're traveling. Why I'm traveling across continents with $5 in my pocket, I have no idea. But he wouldn't take it. No, no, I just wanted to help you. And so I got on the plane, and I met my parents, and we went to Malawi. And my whole image of Africa changed again. And everything that I had despised about it, everything that I thought I didn't like about it, all of a sudden I realized in Malawi... This was a whole different place. It was, it was cold. I had grown up on the equator in the jungle. We had never worn a sweater. I didn't even know people wore sweaters in Africa. They had mountains 10,000 feet high. There was a big lake 400 uh, miles long. Uh, the people were absolutely wonderful, humble, gracious people, a strong Christian country. And while I was there that week, I realized... Well, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is why I love Africa. I've, I, I felt like I was, had been like the servant in the story in, Ma, in Luke chapter 19, where the master goes off and he says, do business with this while I'm gone. But that servant, he takes what he had been given, and he wraps it up in a handkerchief, and he buries it in his backyard. And that's what I had been doing. God had given me a great appreciation for the people in Africa. These were my people. I knew them. I understood them. I loved being there with them. And all of that came back that week I was there. And so I got back on the plane excited. My parents flew back to Liberia. I'm going back to California. They went back to Liberia with a whole different story. I was actually surprised. A couple weeks later, I got a letter from my older brother, Delbert, that was working with them. And he said, well, Mom and Dad just announced to the staff that they're not going to try to build a college in Liberia. It's going to be too expensive. It's too far away. It's going to be too difficult to work with the government there. Dad said he would have to try to raise too much money. This isn't the right time to build a college in Malawi. And I remember sitting down and writing my parents a letter, and my mother kept that letter for years because I quoted back to them their own motto, which had always been, Faith in action, God in motion. You put your faith in action, then God starts to work for you. And I quoted that to him, and I said, Mom and Dad, where is your faith? And so because of that letter, they changed their mind. They decided to start building a college in Liberia. And it was two or three years later, Dad asked if I would help to go supervise the construction of that college. My heart had changed, but I didn't want to live in Africa permanently. And so I told Dad, I said well, how long do you need me there doing construction? He said, oh, about two years it should take to build the college campus. I said, that's fine. I'll give you two years. And so Laura and I packed up with our first daughter. Ashley was five months old and got on the plane and went to Malawi. And in those days, that was 1989, Lilongwe was a genuine hardship post. Just getting food out of a grocery store was a difficult thing. They never had sugar. The whole, not just the first two years were there, the first... Seven or eight years we were there, you couldn't walk in a grocery store and buy sugar. Buying jelly, you would go, if, if they manufactured anything in Malawi, you couldn't import it. So they didn't want any competition. It was like a state-controlled, all the grocery stores. And so they, they would can jelly, and they would put different labels on it with a picture of a strawberry or a picture of an orange or a picture of grapes. But you open the can, it was all the same. It, it was like shopping in Vladivostok during the Cold War. Just buying chickens. The grocery stores didn't have freezers big enough to hold chickens. So Laura would have to buy live chickens, bring them back to the house where the people helping us in, around the house would cut the heads off in the front yard, which horrified this girl from San Diego. And she would put the chickens on the back seat of the car. And our car always smelled like chicken business. And I said, Laura, why don't you tie the chickens to the rear view mirrors like everyone else does in Malawi? that when you buy the chickens, the legs are tied together and the Africans just hang them on the mirrors outside the car so they don't mess up the inside of your car. She said, Paul, I don't mind killing the chickens in the front yard, but I'm not driving around town with chickens hanging upside down from the rear view mirrors. But after we had been there for those two years, both of us realized, well, this is our home. We now had a vested interest. We had put in our work to build the campus. But we also saw the enthusiasm, not just the need from the students, but the church leaders that were excited to have a genuine Christian college. We were encouraged by churches like First Presbyterian Church here in Macon that came alongside of us and told us, you're not in this alone, we're in this with you, and helped us build one of our first buildings on that campus. Helped us put in the first Christian radio station, whole country of Malawi, 14 million people y'all built the first christian radio station in that whole country helped us put in a maternity ward a labor and delivery ward at our mission hospital and so that's why this story is so important because god knew that i needed to be a part of it just like david livingston needed to be a part of it just like just like my father and bill bouvet needed to be a part of it i was just one link in that chain but god knew that I needed to get on that plane, to go with my parents to Malawi, so I could see it differently than they had. One, to change my heart, but to encourage them to put an African Bible college in that country. And because ABC was founded there 20 years ago, we now have over a thousand of our graduates, not just pastoring churches, but in every kind of ministry that you can imagine. The head of navigators for the whole country is one of our graduates. The head of child evangelism for the whole country is one of our graduates. Ahead of Campus Crusade, when Bill Bouvet left, he turned that work over to one of our graduates, Nixon Sneezer. Transworld Radio, World Vision, all of them. The Church of Central Africa Presbyterian elected one of our graduates to run their synod. In, in, in Malawi, the synods, instead of presbyteries, they have three large synods. Each synod has roughly two million members. We're in the central region, and one of our graduates in 2007, Davison Chifungo, was elected as General Secretary. It's a permanent position over a church of two million people. Now, you would ask, well, why is that significant? And it's like Paul Harvey telling the rest of the story. It's because five years ago, exactly 2007, when Davison when, when Chifungo was elected to be the General Secretary of our Synod, that churches in Germany, Presbyterian churches in the UK, liberal presbyterian churches here in the US started funding projects for the presbyterian churches in the north and in the south but along with funding projects they wanted them to liberalize their theology questioning the inerrancy of scripture introducing egalitarianism all kinds of liberal theology that came along with the money but Davis and Chifungo was in place there in the central region to say sorry We can't take your money because we're not going to liberalize our theology. We're not going to put those things in place like they've done in the north, like they've done in the south. And so the end of the story is, like Paul Harvey tells, today we have a strong, an evangelical, a reformed, conservative church where two million people go to church every single Sunday because there's an ABC graduate at the head of that denomination making sure that the Bible is taught accurately every single week in those churches. So this is the kind of story that brings God glory. These are the kinds of stories that God wants you to be a part of. And I'd like you to ask you the question, what would your story be like if you sat down and wrote it today? Would you like the chapter that you wrote last week? Would you like the chapter you're going to write next week? Many of you know Dr. Jim Baird. Jim Baird visited our campus in Liberia in 1983. And while he was there in Liberia, he visited a leper colony just an hour or so from our college campus. is run by the Methodist Church. And at the leper colony, a lot of the lepers earn a living by doing little wood carvings out of mahogany. And so Jim Baird bought a pair of praying hands that was mounted in a map of Africa from one of the lepers. And they wrapped it up in some newspaper and Jim Baird put it in a suitcase and brought it home. And when he's sitting at his desk at his church, he unwrapped that newspaper and went to set it on his desk but he noticed on the bottom of that carving on the bottom of the map of africa there the leper had etched in his name it was isaac Drove, and he had put the date that he had carved it june 3 1983 and jim baird said you know every day i look at those praying hands it's a reminder to me to ask am i living a life today that i'd be proud enough to put my name on and that's a question we need to ask ourselves god wants us To live a great story, great stories are never the easy ones. Great stories are told by people who live by faith. Great stories are told by ordinary people who do extraordinary things. So that's the kind of story God wants you to live so that his story of his salvation, his grace, his mercy, his loving kindness can be told through your lives. Well, this morning I did want to close as... Reverend Miller said, by telling you just briefly about something new that we have at African Bible College, it's a chance for you to participate in the story of ABC, to participate in the story of Africa, and the story of one of our students. We've just introduced a new sponsorship program where people can choose a student that they sponsor, either uh, here at the church, we have a, a board down in the brickyard, or you can go online and select a student that you'd like to sponsor. But in the way it's set up, each of our students, they do have to pay tuition. We charge our students as much as we think they can afford. Our cost per student to put a a student through college in Africa is roughly $2,800 a year. We ask them to pay $800, which is a tremendous stretch. Malawi is the fourth poorest country in the world. Liberia just finished a 16-year-long war. Uganda has been going through conflict for the last 20 years. And so it's a very big challenge for these students to come up with $800 each. But our cost is $2,800, which means we need another $2,000 per student that we take. And we have 500 students at the college. We're asking people in your church to consider sponsoring one of these students. We have 24 of them up on the boards downstairs. And it's a commitment. It's a genuine commitment. But it's if you break it down, $2,000 a year is $167 a month. And so either you can do this as a family or find another couple that would like to share that with you. But it's life-changing. These students know it when they come to a college like African Bible College. Their parents know it. We know it. Their life will never be the same again. And it makes a big difference for them. But it's also the special thing about African Bible College is that we're able to multiply our efforts every single year. We're graduating between our three campuses, over 100 students a year that are doing things and going places that we as missionaries, even I that have been in Africa my, my whole life, are doing things I could never do. One great story, two of our graduates just finished at ABC in Malawi a year ago. Yo, uh, one's name is Yohani Yakobe, the other one's name is Kennedy. While they were students, part of our, our outreach program was to the local prison. They had been working and doing devotions in one of the local prisons, but they realized that they had inmates as young as 12 and 13 years old, teenagers all the way up to the age of 20, and many of these kids had been there one year, two years, three years with no schooling at all. So when they graduated last June, they were in my office a month later after they graduated. They said, Reverend Chin, Chin we wanted to tell you what we've been doing in the last month. They said, we've started a school in the prisons. I said, well, have you already gotten permission from the warden over the prisons in the capital city, oh, yeah, we have a letter from him, and they showed me the letter giving us permission to start a school for these students. I said, well, how about funding? How are you paying your teachers? Well, we already have a Jewish lady in New York that's going to pay our teachers for us. And I said, well, do you have school materials? Yes, the government's going to provide the school materials. I said, well, what, what, what do you need from me? Why are you in my office? This is one month after they graduated. They said, we just wanted to tell you thank you. We wanted to tell you what we're doing. And what a great witness to ABC, not just giving them an education, but giving them vision, empowering them to help their own people. But it wouldn't be possible. We can't do this on our own without people like you helping our students that are there. And so I'm going to ask, I asked the missions committee if we could challenge your church to take, or people in your church to take 24 different students. I'm going to leave the board set up there with 24 students. And I told Don Blackburn, he said, do you want the board back to take somewhere else? I said, no, I have 500 students I need sponsored. I'm going to leave those here, and I'm happy to leave them till Christmas. Uh, my, my twin brother, some of you remember him preaching here a year or two years ago, but he tells a similar story. He was asked by an orphan organization in Sierra Leone to sponsor 140 orphans, and so he put a clothesline up above the, the stage at the front of the church, and he put all the kids' pictures on the clothesline. It was during the summer. And he told the church, he said, I don't care if they stay here till Christmas. We're going to get all of these kids sponsored. They have three services at my brother's church in Arizona. He said by the end of the second service, all 140 kids had been taken down. There were none left for anybody in the last service to sponsor. Luckily, there's a few left down there for you after the first service. But thank you very much for a chance to share with you this morning. That display is talking about is in the area right outside the nursery, uh, and if you want to go there after the